Yale Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through a few episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. Today's episode is the first of two devoted to our March 2018 issue on sensory biology and pain. I am your host, Erica Gorenberg, a third-year graduate student in the neuroscience program here at Yale. And I am your host, Calvin Fong, a fifth-year MD-PhD student planning on joining the neuroscience program. We are also joined today by one of the deputy editors for the issue on sensory biology and pain. Neil Ravindra. I'm also uh, a PhD student uh, in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. We're going to talk to Neil at the end of the episode about some of the articles in this issue of the journal. But for now, let's jump into talking about sensory biology. So what is sensory biology? What does it system actually do for you? I guess you start off, your brain needs information from the outside world and it needs information about yourself in order to do all that it is that you do. You need to see things, hear things, smell things, taste things, and touch things. These are likely the uh, five senses that you might have heard from your public, edu- well, public your, your your education, education. Like kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> from kindergarten all the way to whenever, but there's more than just these five senses. But Calvin, as you just said, they're the five that we learned. So vision, so sight, uh, olfaction is the, the term that we tend to use in, in the field for smell, audition is hearing, um, there's taste, and then there's touch, and there are also different kinds of touch, so... Um, pressure when someone, you know, gives you a hug or something like that. Thermoreception, which is um, when, you know, you touch something hot or cold, so your temperature sensation, and nociception, which is pain. And we're going to go into a little bit more detail um, into the details of those as we as we move on with the podcast. But there are also more. So other senses include the uh, vestibular senses. So these are also in your ear. What that means is there's a sense of balance, what's up or down. So if you ever rode uh, one of those carnival rides and spinning and you feel dizzy, it's your vestibular system that's going a bit out of whack. Or like for me, when I'm uh, like, I get car sick really easily, it's my vestibular system that's mm-hmm. uh, messed up. Another one is a proprioception. So if you close your eyes, Hopefully, you can still kind of get a sense of where your arms are. If you raise your arms, you will know where it is. So proprioception means the sense of where your bodies and limbs are in space. There are also a whole bunch of what we call interoreceptors. These are the internal receptors in your body to get a sense of what's going on. So your brain is getting information about things like your blood pressure, heart rate. This is done through things called baroreceptors, baro referring to pressure. There are also uh, lung stretch receptors or pulmonary stretch receptors. We, these are to use to modulate your breathing. And there are chemoreceptors. These can sense oxygen and carbon dioxide levels to make certain that you are getting rid of enough carbon dioxide and getting in enough oxygen. And all sorts of other reflexes. You might know about your gag reflex or if you've ever been to a doctor and have him hit your knee with a hammer, that's a deep tendon reflex. These all involve some sort of sensory input. Yeah, so you can imagine, like, sensation is is pretty important in, in our day-to-day function. Um, one of the other things, there are some senses that we don't have as humans that other animals do. And so, you know, one of those things might be that our our visual range is limited to, you know, what we call the visual light spectrum. But some animals can see uh, 
see outside of our visible range. There are also animals like um, some kinds of sharks that have magnetic receptive um, abilities that allow them to navigate based on the Earth's magnetic field. And so, you know, things that we can't even comprehend um, that there are brains and there are sensory systems that are meant to um, meant to sense those things. Mm-hmm. There's even crazier things. So, for example, like octopuses or other cephalopods, your squids, your cuttlefish, they only have one set of chromophore, which means that basically they can only see one color. They're colorblind. However, in their skin, they have a whole bunch of these kind of proteins that are normally found in our retinas. So then you're starting to ask, are they kind of sensing colors through their touch or something? It gets beyond what, you know, we can imagine in our own heads. That's cool. This, I wonder if that's why they can uh, like change color to so, match. So that's kind of one of the hypotheses, is that if they're colorblind, how can they mediate all this camouflage, all these crazy colors on their skin? The idea is that perhaps these um, receptors in their skin can actually directly f- get feedback from their color changes. That's really cool. So so one of the questions you might be asking right now is, like, great, okay, we have a bunch of senses, but how is that information useful? How is it getting to your brain? All of those kinds of things. And so um, sensory information is transmitted through nerves, right? You know, you have nerves. And these are made up of cells called neurons. And neurons are the type of cell that make up your brain. And they make up your spinal cord. And they're responsible for all of your sensory input and your motor output. Um, and so your information that you're receiving from the outside world, so, you know, the chair that you're sitting in and my voice coming through your headphones or your or your speakers, all of that information comes through your eyes or your ears or your skin or your nose, whatever, into the central nervous system, which is the spinal cord and the brain. And your brain is responsible for integrating all of that information, taking everything in the world around you and interpreting it to understand how you fit in to that world. Well, I guess a quick little thing is it's not necessarily everything because the information around the whole world is vast and enormous. So at a very important part of our sensory system is that it extracts key features, what we call salient features. So... These these can play into all sorts of these um, visual um no forget the word. Go ahead. Uh, give me a second. These are all playing. Like visual cues. Yes. yes. These are all these are all playing to the visual cues. All those like little tricks that you might see. So for example, like the blind spots you might have, or if you notice your peripheral vision, everything's a bit more blurry than in the center of your vision. Yeah, you tend to notice, like, the things that are moving or, like, um, you don't need to pay attention to the fact that you're wearing your clothes, right? You don't notice that your clothes are on you all the time until I until I just pointed out that you're wearing your clothes and now you might be uh, you might be feeling your clothes a little bit more. But that kind of thing is no longer important. It's not changing. You don't need to um, pay attention to it anymore. So your, your brain kind of adapts to it and pays more attention to the new information. Yeah, thanks. Now I'm thinking about my clothes on me. <laughs> But anyway, so the question then is, how do these, where, where, how do these input get from the beginning to the brain? So what happens is that the way information travels down a single neuron is through what we call an action potential. These are my favorite. I have a tattoo of an action potential. These are they're also very cool to see in real life when you're doing experiments. But basically, you can think of a 
uh, part of the neuron, what we call the axon, is basically like a single long wire that's conductive to electricity. So once input is sent into an axon, once it receives enough input. So like your touch or your sound or your smell or whatever it is. Exactly. You cross a, hopefully a certain threshold and then an actual potential will be produced. This is basically a single charge that's being driven down the wire of the cell. You can think about it as almost like the flickering of a light, right? Like you're turning on the light just for a second and it's, it transmits the information. Um, but then that tr- information, you know, it reaches the end of the axon and it releases chemical messengers called neurotransmitters. And those um, signal to the next neuron in the pathway to have its own action potential. And that is how the information gets from your skin or your eyes up through your spinal cord and into your brain. And then your brain continues sending those in order to integrate the information. Thousands, millions of those are happening all the time. Yep, and that's where it gets really complicated, and this is why neuroscience is difficult to do. So one of the many questions is then... But exciting. Of course, definitely exciting. But this is one of the big questions, and is how does the... How does it say a single neuron in the brain take all these various inputs, right? Because you don't just see things. You see, you hear, you taste. How does it integrate all these various inputs to produce a single output? And then other questions can include a single neuron can actually send outputs to multiple neurons later down the road. So then where does it actually send these send this information? What does the next neuron actually receive? How does... What does that actually mean when the next neuron receives this packet of information? What does it extract or what kind of, is it like compression going on or who knows? Right, exactly. There's so many different kinds of cells and different um, ways that the information or different information that your brain can be receiving. Um, Another thing that we haven't talked about yet is that when the signal doesn't actually get to your brain, it just stops at your spinal cord. And that's really important for reflexes, right? If you touch a hot stove you don't want to wait the amount of time it's going to take to get to your brain. Even though that's really short, it's not as short as it takes to get to your spinal cord. And so your spinal cord has the ability to conduct reflexes. So you don't have to register, you don't have to perceive that the stove is hot before you take your hand off of it. Um, And so like you can think of, again, as Calvin said, like when the doctor hits your knee with a hammer, that is a test of your reflexes. but they're really important, you know, it, not just not just integrating and understanding the world through your brain, but, you know, before you can even understand it. And this kind of gets to one question that some of you guys may have is, why do we even need pain? It's kind of, you know, annoying to have right? when you get hit. It's really hard. It's really hard and it hurts a lot. and You can't do much. Well, going back to the burning example, you can imagine if you don't feel that the stove is hot and burning you, you might just accidentally leave your hand there for for a while. So actually, it's also been shown that patients without these pain receptors are more prone to uh, drastic medical emergencies because they don't notice that they might have an infection, that they're burning themselves, that they accidentally cut themselves multiple times, They maybe while they're chopping food. All sorts of things can happen. Mm-hmm. So, so we've talked a little bit about how the sensory information gets from, you know, where it is received um, and into your brain or your spinal cord, but we didn't actually talk about how that information gets into the neurons, right? And there are lots of different ways that this happens, and, and they're um, different for different types of sensory systems. And so um, there are a, a few main classes, right? So there's chemical reception there's, or like chemoreception, there's mechanoreception, and there's photoreception, and those are like the main classes of um, 
of reception of uh, sensory information. And so I guess I'll just start talking about the, the chemical receptive senses. And those are olfaction and taste, so smell and taste. And the way these work are that there are proteins, so small machines at the ends of your neurons that bind chemicals in the air or in the food that you're eating, depending on, you know, which sense we're talking about here. And those, um, the chemical in the food activates the the receptor, and this causes um, part of the neuron to open up and receive um, that electrical signal that we talked about, that action, or the beginning of the action potential, what might help it reach threshold. Um, And so, you know, salt, if you have salt in your food, that might activate a specific type of receptor on your tongue that would lead to, you know, your salty pathway being activated versus, you know, um, there are a few different types of, of taste. You know, there's umami, there's bitter, there's sweet, there's salty. And these all have different kinds of receptors and the different combinations of these receptors are activating um different like groups of neurons and and causing the perception of you know "Mm, this chocolate cake is delicious and sweet um versus you know this i don't know something that's something smelly something smellier like bad for you when you walk past a garbage truck you know that's kind of not (laughs) that great but when you walk by a bakery shop you smell all that fresh the fresh cakes and the fresh breads and everything and one of the most interesting things about this to me is the um the evolutionary perspective on it is that, you know, bitter things um, are more likely to be um, toxic to us. And so we perceive them as bitter. And so the the chemical structure of them um, hits our bitter receptors. And so that's why we like don't necessarily like bitter as much. Um, Oh, I forgot sour. Sour is one too, you know, acidic taste. If you think about like your rotten milk, if you ever decide to drink rotten milk, it tastes a bit sour. Yeah, versus like sweet, right? Something that has a lot of glucose in it, so something that would be really high in energy. Um, that that would that, that we that's why we like you know that's why I like chocolate cake so much. Mm-hmm. Or you might wonder why we like salt. Well, that helps to maintain your water balance in your body. All this really wonderful, complicated homeostasis things in the body, which speaking of homeostasis, that's what chemical receptors also come into play. So if you remember when we talked about oxygen and carbon dioxide levels, these are also chemicals in your blood. So you have chemical receptors there to sense these. You also have chemical receptors to sense um, your hormones and everything. So chemical receptors play a major role Throughout your body, not just in uh, sensation. Yeah, and so, and and, you know, uh, olfaction is very similar. It's just instead of things that are basically dissolved in your saliva, it's stuff that hits your nose and has, you know, goes through the olfactory pathway instead of of through your tongue. Um, Do you want to talk about mechanoreceptors? Sure. So mechanical receptors, what does that mean? So that's breaking down the word mechanical. It just means some sort of physical stress, right? Like if you kind of tug something or you uh, stretch something. So these the examples of mechanical receptors include audition. So when you hear what's going on when you're hearing things, um, sound is basically the vibrations in the air. So once they hit your, in the, shoot, there are vibrations in the air. So once they enter your air, E-A-R, <laughs> they will vibrate these hair cells, and then these hair cells, which 
will be stretched will activate these neurons and suddenly the extra potentials. They're also involved in things like proprioception. So when you go, go off balance, you're stretching more of these receptors. This is also how you do touch. Yeah, there are lots of different kinds of touch neurons. So like for hard pressure versus, you know, just a light, you know, tickly sensation. And, and these are all mechanical receptors that um, react to like being physically distorted, um, which is which is pretty interesting. It's, it's different than like the classic neurotransmission that I think um, at least I learned about most of the time um, in my in my like college education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's also, we haven't talked about vision yet very much. That's like the sense that uh, a lot of us, you know, depend on pretty pretty regularly. Um, and so re- uh, vision is uh, mediated by photoreceptors, and, and these are a type of protein that's basically sensitive to light. It changes the way it's shaped in response to light. Um, and... I mean, I think this is really cool. There's like so there's so much research being done in vision. And actually, um, in our next episode of the podcast, we're actually going to be speaking to uh, Dr. Jessica Cardin, who is uh, one of the researchers here at Yale studying vision. So we're going to get into that a little bit more um, with her. But just a little bit basics on on photoreceptors, right? You have two different kinds of photoreceptive cells in your eye. Um, There's rods and cones, and cones are responsible for your color vision. And rods are responsible for more like in the dark kind of uh, like black-white differential. And um, these types of cells react. They send... They cause a, an action potential in the neurons, and they, they all come together and create this, like, amazing picture that you can see in front of you. And, and uh, like, just from a, a chemical change, which is pretty mind-blowing to me. Mm-hmm. And the one interesting about rods versus cones is rods are also more sensitive. So here's a little fun thing to do. If you ever look up at the night sky and you see a very faint star, so you have more cones at the center of your eyes, but more rods on the outer edges of your eyes. So if you kind of look away from the star and use your peripheral vision, that star might actually come more into view because now you're using your rods instead of your cones, which are more sensitive to light. The other interesting thing about photoreceptors is that actually these proteins are also actually very important now in modern neuroscience. So one of the new hot technologies out there is what we call optogenetics. Opto meaning light, genetics meaning we do things with the genes of the whatever uh, model we're using for the system, cells or animals. And basically, we can inject these kind of proteins into our model system, and then when we shine light, we can directly activate these neurons without having to send an electrical charge. Yeah, so, you know, we're learning so much about sensory systems, and we're actually able to use it in more than just neuroscience. We can use it in all these different fields of of biology as well, which is cool. so we 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 talked about like sensory signaling why like how it works why it's important but um we haven't really talked about how it works in the brain right we've talked about how it gets to the brain but how um how does your sensory information get integrated how do you take fr- like information from individual cells say in the visual system mm-hmm. and make it into a complete picture, a moving picture of what's around you. And 
To be frank, one reason why is because it's a very hot area of research. <laughs> it's hot, but very complicated. So uh, we're just gonna kind of do a, you know, broad, mm-hmm. broad overview, bird's eye view of, um, you know, sensory input into the brain. Um, but so we talked about sensory input being, you know, one neuron transmitting to the next neuron to the next neuron, sort of like dominoes. Um, But in reality, a single neuron can receive signals from many other neurons and be transmitting to many other neurons. And so you're kind of creating this like almost like a tree out of either side of the neuron where the information is coming from, where it's going to. Um, And it's sent. So then your information is getting sent all over the brain. For all di- to all different systems, so your you know visual sensory information is interacting with your auditory, so that you can create an actual picture. You know that I see Calvin in front of me talking to me, um, and you know that his voice makes sense with uh, you know who he is. Mm-hmm. So this generally we kind of see it as two ways that information travels in the brain. So one way is what we call feed forward. This is where we start from the like from a very early on, say, like the eye for vision. And as it travels down the brain, we are extracting information to build more and more complicated features. So you can imagine from the eye, we just start with basic information about the color and contrast. We start to, as you move down the brain, you start to build edges. Then you start to um, figure out, like, the shape that the edges form. And then you can develop all the way to things like faces. So we have seen actual neurons in the higher regions of the brain that respond directly to not the the face of a person, but also the name of the person. So as you get further further down the road, the brain can start to integrate all this information into the identity of various objects. Um, And so that's, you know, this, like, feed-forward bottom-up sort of process. Um, but there's also this idea that there's a top-down process of of the way the brain models the world around it. And this is sort of the idea that the brain is meant to predict things about the world around it. And so this is, you know, the brain is building this model of the world around it. And so when I see Calvin in front of me, I expect Calvin's voice to sound like Calvin's voice. And Calvin expects my voice to sound like my voice because, you know, we know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the, you have expectations about what is going to happen based on um, based on what you see. You have expectations about what you're going to hear based on what you're going to see and um, what you're going to smell, right? Like if I walk up to some flowers, I expect that they're going to smell good. I open my milk. I don't expect that it smells rotten unless, you know, the expiration date is <laughs> mm-hmm. long gone. Um, and so – there's an interesting illusion related to this phenomenon, um, and it's called the McGurk effect. And I haven't actually seen this video, but I think Calvin has. So basically what's going on is that the um, exact same sound is being played over and over. But for the video, you either see the person, uh, the person's lips forming the, um, the movements to make the sound either ba or va. And even though the underlying sound is the same because of what, how the lips are moving, you actually seem to hear the two different sounds, despite the fact that it's the same sound for both videos. Oh, that's really interesting. They do this sometimes with, like, funny memes. 
you know, where, you know, it's somebody who is maybe mumbling and they dub over with something really silly that that person would probably never say. Um, so I, I have I've seen maybe not the experimental version of this, but yeah, you can it makes you, you think that something different is being said. Um, it's important for us to note that these are not like contradictory views, right? You, your brain is very complicated. It can be working in both directions at once and it, it can integrate what it sees and what it hears and use that to create a new model of the world um, and update its model of the world and use that model to anticipate, you know, what it is going to see, hear, smell, taste, um, etc. So um, you expect to hear your friend's voice or see more or see your friend's face. And that's what you hear. And when, you know, when my dad picks up the phone, but I call my brother, you know, I'm like, oh, hey, my brother. But it's it's not it's not my brother. So it's the, it's the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine why the brain was evolved in order to do all this, because that way, the more accurate the brain can take this information and create a proper model for the world around it, the better the organism can manipulate its surroundings, either to find food or find shelter, right, to find a mate, to do all these things that are important for its survival. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there are also, you know, some dysfunctions of, of the sensory system um, that I, I think it would be really cool to talk about that, that kind of get at, you know, these really interesting mechanisms that are happening in the brain and in the body. Um, so one of my favorites is is uh, blind sight. And blind sight, for those of you who haven't um, heard of it before, is um, these are these are people who are blind due to a problem with their visual cortex, so the part of their brain that is responsible for processing vision. And so when you ask them what they see, they don't see anything. Their their vision is, I mean, from my understanding, just dark and it's black. But when you set them to walk through, you know, a new room, they're able to avoid the objects in the room. So the tables and the chairs to an extent um, or or get out of the way if something is thrown at them. And so this is because there are multiple stages in visual processing. And so as Calvin said earlier on, um, that you're, you know, you you make these edges and then you compile the edges and add like shade and color and things like that, and so maybe um, their visual cortex is damaged at a at a later point that allows them to like put that whole picture together, but they still have the ability to see the ed- to perceive, I guess, the edges and things like that, so that they can navigate the world around them, which is. I think really interesting. Mm-hmm. And what makes it really cool is that we actually know there's also parallel pathways. So even though we block one pathway, somehow the other pathway is able to compensate to make these movements. But then the question is, why is that parallel? Why is that other working parallel pathway not allowing us to consciously see things? Right? It allows us to move around, but we can't actually consciously visualize. So these are all very complicated questions that maybe one day, maybe one day, we can figure out why. Another related interesting phenomenon that some people may have heard of is called phantom limb. So this is when you have a amputation of one of your limbs, say like your left arm, you may still feel it somehow. It might itch. Commonly, it also shows you with pain down the arm, but it's no longer there. So unlike blindsight, this is a far less known, well understood phenomenon. So this debate between whether it's a peripheral mechanism, meaning something to do on the outside. So this is like maybe because you cut the arm, those severed nerve endings are just wildly active. So they keep sending signals to the brain and your brain just 
trying to figure out how to interpret it and calls it either itch or pain. Other mechanisms include what we call central mechanisms. So is this something that may be going on in the brain to adapt to this loss? limb. So this can include like plasticity. So the idea that the brain is now trying to figure out where that limb went, puts it somewhere else on your body. And so you have, whenever you feel something on that part of the body, you are now associated with your missing arm. Right. Um, and this is all related to this idea of like adaptation and your, um, your brain's plasticity. And so um, your brain is very, very plastic. It's very adaptable, um, particularly in the early years of life. And so if something changes, um, there were really early experiments in the visual system where um, they, they closed the eye of an animal like during, during its visual development. And um, this, the, the visual system that would have been responsible for that animal's closed eye was taken over by the open eye. And so there was more visual space um, by that open eye just because it happened during development. Mm-hmm. And this is like the, the Hubel and Weisel like canonical like oh, big Hubel and Wise or the classic um, but so th- this idea of plasticity is also really important in your in your sensory systems um, and in your brain in general mm-hmm. and this is actually the notion of plasticity is something that we hopefully can manipulate in the future to maybe try to address some of these kind of various disorders to... Of the sensory system. Yeah, if we can... The ideal scenario is if we can, like, rewire the brain to what we consider as a healthy state away from the dysfunctional state. Right, exactly. Um, so, Calvin, as a, as a medical student, I think huh. you're probably more qualified to talk about how... Um, how medicine, like, tends to study the, the sensory system or at least, like, you know, assess whether someone's senses are... Um, functioning the way we would expect them to. So do you want to maybe talk about um, some of the aspects of like the physical exam for the sensory system? I can give it a go. So first starting off, the most important sense as a physician that we ca- we would care about is pain, right? We want to minimize the pain as much as we can in a patient. So there's various questions we will ask about the pain. One, you might have heard of the 1 to 10 scale, 1 being no pain, 10 to being the very worst pain you've had. We then also start to ask questions like, where do, do you feel the pain? Do you feel like the pain is spreading anywhere? What's the quality of the pain? Mm-hmm. And by answering these questions as a physician, we can start to get a sense of what might be causing the pain. And might even start to reveal, like, you know, is it going to be a neurological issue? Is it because some of the nerve endings were cut? Or is it maybe a muscular issue? Is it because of infection and inflammation? So these various different kind of disorders cause very specific types of pain mm-hmm. that we can start to use to differentiate the diagnosis. And, like, uh, one of the things I know that they tend to do is, right, like, someone comes in with, like, numbness on one side, you know, you can tell sort of or, you know, or pain on one side, like, where the issue is. Um, I'm not great at this because I am not a doctor, but um, but you can you can um, you can determine, like, where in the nervous system the defect is based on, like, the kind of, um, you know, like, sensory loss or sensory, you know pain that you're experiencing but one of the other things you know they always do when you go to the doctor is like the light in your eye to check your your visual like uh your pupillary like your dilation and your reflexes yeah there. make sure your your eyes are working properly yeah but that's to actually specifically test for cranial nerves so you have a set of 12 cranial nerves that basically mediate sensation and movement 
from the shoulders up. So from your vision to your hearing to like making a smile to chewing your food to tasting your food, and so for when we're actually checking your eyes, we're going to check for like the movement of your eyes, how if your pupils can dilate, can they focus, and these are specifically two cranial nerves, two, three, mm-hmm. four, and six. That sounds right. Yes. So cranial one is you know your smell. Eight is hearing. There's a set of twelve that. Especially for neurologists, we focus on, and the key, interesting thing is, based on our test, we can start to identify which nerve, which is the likely, which nerve is the likely culprit for the problem. And because of our understanding of anatomy, we can then actually start to identify maybe where the problem is. Like, do you maybe have like a small tumor crushing against the nerve, or? Yeah, it's all. It's, it's just so detailed in neuro, like in neurology. It's it's pretty. I don't know. I think it's it's cool. Although I am not going to be a neurologist, so. Yeah, no, it is really cool. But there's also the caveat. Right? There's also still a lot we don't understand. There is a lot we don't understand, and so I think that's a great transition into into talking to Neil a little bit because um, this issue has a lot of really cool articles and interviews about like our progress basically in in sensory biology and in our understanding of sensory biology. So I guess just to start off, hi again, Neil. Hello. Um, So Neil's one of the editors for this issue on sensory biology and pain. And so he got to read all of the articles. Um, (laughs) So so which papers did you uh, enjoy reading? Like what would you recommend to our listeners if they were going to go pick an article or two? Yeah. Um, wow. Well, I, I have more recommendations than just you two. You can recommend as many as you want. But but actually, so I mean, I, in, just to take a step back, I wanted to work on this issue in particular because sensory, as you guys mentioned, sensory biology and pain intersect with so many different scientific disciplines and 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 interests. And true to that, in our issue, we do cover a wide breadth of sensory systems, length scales from molecules to society, and uh, we even talk. To researchers and policy experts about the opioid epidemic. So, but the, just to, to highlight three articles now, um, one that's really interesting is uh, by Gowdry et al., or excuse me, just by G- Quentin Gowdry. Um, and in that review, he, he talks a lot about the role of serotonin, the neurotransmitter in ol- olfactory systems. Um, and it's a really sort of interesting a lot of open questions about exactly what serotonin does in olfactory processing. And he reviews some of the literature and specifically focuses on how uh, serotonin can influence learning and uh, development in early stage olfactory processing. So like sort of like modulation, like the higher order processing that we were sort of talking about. Right, right. And and some like really interesting general principles come out of that, like um, serotonin, for example, doesn't target a specific class of neurons. Instead, they target a specific receptor spread across many different neurons. So that just brings in already a lot of complexity with how does, with it interacting with so many neurons, what are the circuits, how are they oriented, what's their structure, so on and so forth. And then the larger question is, what does that do for olfactory processing? So big questions, um, kind of an interesting field even though it's not my field, um, but it, it's a good read if listeners are interested. Yeah, it sounds interesting. Um, yeah, so I'll just I'll just briefly mention two others. So Detweiler um, has a nice mini review on some molecular mechanisms, which I think you know listeners would be interested in. And it's a it's a mini review, so it's a it's a nice read and, and very well written. And it's about uh, really visual receptors in the eye, but uh, Detweiler concentrates on a light sensitive receptor called 
melanopsin. Um, and this is expressed in a, in a class of photoreceptors in the eye that are called ganglion cells. And a lot of the light transduction processes in ganglion cells are either debated or just entirely unknown. So, so Detweiler brings up some, some outstanding challenges in our understanding of light transduction in these cells, um, which I think you guys didn't quite touch on with the yeah, rods and cones. Yeah, we didn't get so. super detailed into that because it can get really complicated. But right. um, I you think can read Detweiler in it. Yeah, way. yeah, exactly. for another <laughs> another type of cell. Um, and then and then finally, I'll just briefly mention like Yang et al. They they review the uh, the cornea. Um, but I think what's really interesting about their article is they they talk about some of these new non-invasive um, kind of live cell or in vivo microscopy techniques that they can use to diagnose corneal disease. But they also make the kind of a broader claim about treatment with non-invasive laser surgeries kind of offer a glimpse of potential diagnoses and treatments for densely innervated tissues, which the cornea actually is one of the most deeply, or excuse me, densely innervated tissues in our body. So so kind of like it's, it's a big problem, right, to, to treat and diagnose in an invasive way, um, anything that's deeply innervated because you might damage the da- eye. Yeah, or something sh- sure, like that. exactly. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And so, so this offers kind of a nice review on the cornea in, in, in specifically, but also generally. So yeah, so that was three recommendations that's, already. But that's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> and we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about some of the other articles. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess so. One other question then is um, there were several interviews in this issue. Could you possibly tell us a little bit about what they covered? Yeah, so so with the interviews, we we wanted to really cover this recent, um, a lot of the recent coverage about the opioid academic, uh, epidemic. Excuse me. So in 2017, the, the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States declared that the, the opioid epidemic was a public health emergency. And, and they suggested sort of a five-point strategy, you know, to, to com- combat the opioid crisis. And two of those points were for better data and better research into pain and addiction. Um, so we really wanted to, because we have access at Yale to several researchers, and in fact, one of our, one of our editors worked with um, uh, Bertha Madras at Harvard we, we wanted to really get their, like, personal perspective on kind of where the re- research stands and, you know, what's going on with the opioid crisis. So, so we, we, we tried to focus our, our interviews on public health officials and active researchers to, to really get a sense of what's going on with the opioid epidemic. Yeah, it's a really uh, important <clears throat> and uh, important topic. And it's, you know, I feel like this is not a perspective that we get a whole lot. And so I, I was very interested to read uh, these interviews. Yeah. And, and so just to, to actually to advocate for that a little bit more, we, we, we were really lucky to be able to, through Lisa Ogawa, to, to interview Bertha Madras, who is, she's currently a member of the President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis and the former Deputy Director for demand reduction in the sorry I'm reading here in the in the White House Ofi- Office of National Drug Control Policy. So so Lisa uh, Ogawa worked with Bertha Madras, and then from Yale we have our own uh, Dr. Patrick O'Connor and Stephen Waxman and Dr. Stephen Waxman, who recently just started the Yale's program in, in addiction medicine. So so we have a really nice set of um, experts that we interviewed here. So cool. And 
So we tend to think about sensation in terms of our own senses, but、uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this name right. Borges at all took a different approach. Can you tell us、yeah. about what they were looking at? Yeah, so so Borges、uh, offers a, a review on on nocturnal pollination,、um, which is basically in general kind of how organisms that are active at night and pollinate at night, and also the the, the flowers and the, the things that get pollinated themselves. They, these organisms have basically evolved sensory systems、um, for these low light environments.、Um, And and really, there are a lot of adaptations, specifically in the visual system, for these nocturnal pollinators.、Um, and Borges kind of re- reviews the the adaptations across the po- these pollinators' eyes, their photoreceptors, their central nervous system, and all of these kind of adaptations work together to increase these organisms' sensitivity to the environmental cues at night.、Um, And, and it really enables enables them to utilize floral resources even when there's like low photon flux condition, basically low、Much、light. light yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's、um, really interesting, especially if you're you know interested in how how the sensory systems are different in other organisms.、Uh, yeah, like we mentioned, a, we mostly focused on on basically human mammalian systems, and so you know、yeah. how do flowers and plants and and pollinators react is also. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's really an, an, an interesting read because、um, there there are co adaptations in plants that rely on nocturnal pollinators. So, so like the plant adapted、yeah. because the the pollinator had also adapted. Right. Exactly. So so anything from you know a plant's scent to its flower size,、um, so it can have larger surface area at night because you know one problem is that if it exposes itself to the sun, it can dehydrate. So, but at night, that's not an issue. So, it has all, all of these different morphologies and structures and co-adaptations. It's, it's it's really interesting. I I didn't even know it was kind of happening because I'm I'm not right.、Well、like I'm not a plant biologist. Yeah, but like yeah, the, yeah. it's I, I don't know. The world、yeah. is fascinating. I've always did、yeah. find plants interesting. I remember in my electrophysiology lab back in undergrad, we actually found little actual potentials in certain plants.、Ah. So they're very slow,、mm. but that way they they these will actually use differently not for. Uh, nocturnal sensation, but actually for、uh, when there's a danger,、oh. right? So when you have a predator trying to eat part of the plant, you can kind of send this still slowish action potential to the rest of the plant, so it can kind of start to mount some sort of defensive mechanism. But yeah, and I, I think we don't typically think of plants as kind of sensor in sensory biology, really. Yeah, yeah so it, it's really、That's、nice.、Awesome. Yeah. I think so. There's just like one more article that I wanted to to、yeah. let our our listeners know about.、Um, so the Hoover paper looked at how the modern world affects our senses, and so、um, she talked about sensory loss in the modern world and and economic inequity. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that article? Yeah, this perspective by、uh, by Hoover is is really really interesting.、Um, so it. it It, you know, it it kind of makes it's it's good for any reader, no matter what the what your discipline or even level of expertise is,、um, because if you step into you know any urban environment, the first thing you notice really is a cacophony of just sirens, commotions, a plethora of complex smells, pollutants, and you know a lot of、um, kind of oppressed resplendent light.、Um, Thinking of New York Times Square, especially.、Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really, what this article is about is showing is really reviewing quite a lot of literature that shows、um, that that vulnerable populations and、uh, lower socioeconomic s- status really correlates with poor health outcomes. And so, with poor health outcomes, 
comes uh, increased risk of sensory dysfunction and sensory deprivation, uh, sensory dysfunction. And, and so this article is really reviewing that evidence and specifically looking at olfactory dysfunction, which is particularly interesting because if you think about the fact that there's a lot of re- literature out there showing that, that vulnerable populations tend to live in close proximity to pollutants mm-hmm. and also tend to have a higher risk of olfactory dysfunction, one of the problems with that is that there's no clinical intervention for olfactory dysfunction. So, so really one of the best, you know, quote unquote treatments for this is to make a change at the societal level or at the level of our modern urban population. And so the, 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 the perspective is really about trying to start a dialogue about how we should live in the future in healthier, like, environments that are nice, um, quote-unquote, to our senses. Yeah, because it's not yeah. even – so it's not something you can change if you don't like, yeah. if you don't know it exists. Right, right. right. And, and actually, the, the – sorry, I'm getting That's really fine. excited because this is a really, really interesting perspective. But the, the thing is that everyone should care about it because there's also this disconnect between our modern environment and our natural environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so everyone is at risk for sensory – dysfunction. Right. Yeah. The brain was not evolved to live in a modern world with pollution <laughs> and yeah, yeah, right. light, like bright lights and computers. And right. It's uh, something hopefully one day we can figure out exactly what all this means for our health in the broad yeah. scheme of things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think the conclusion here is that there's a lot we don't know about our <laughs> senses, <laughs> a lot we don't realize it's, that it's affecting us. Um, mm-hmm. But with that, it's it's time to wrap up. So thank you again to to Neil for joining us today and telling us about the articles in the journal. And thank thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. You can join us next month for our second podcast on sensory biology and pain, where we're going to discuss our issue and the current state of you know visual system and sensory biology research uh, at the laboratory bench with Dr. Jessica Carden, an associate professor of neuroscience here at Yale. And thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to Philip Kearney and the rest of the Yale Broadcast Center for helping with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to our editors-in-chief, Yasmin Zakinyaz and Helen Balenson, and the rest of the YGBM staff. We are produced and written by Helen Balenson, Erica Gorenberg, Calvin Fang, and Neil Ravindra. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. If you'd like to contact us, email us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by leaving comments. You can also listen to us and share our podcast on SoundCloud by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. See you next month for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.